Hello, I'm Colin Williams. And I'm Ian Rowlands. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. And uh, today's topic, Ian, um, is one... I'm a bit trepidatious about it because it's a huge subject, um, but one which we're going to try and condense down into some um, discussion about um, how it um, affects the human experience in the non-human world. And it is the topic of myths and folklore and stories around those things hmm and i when you when you said we we're going to talk about this i was trying to give it some personal focus i suppose because it is such a big topic and i i guess i ended up drawing down upon that we in the west modern day societies have very little exposure to the other to mm. non-human i mean it's for most people their exposure to animals is pets so the changing way that we view creatures wild domesticated the way that we interact with the natural world is is very limited and myth allows us to touch upon some deeper ancestral memories of how we once interacted with those beings and their timeless stories i guess does that make sense yeah it does and i suppose it, it, for me it also points to um not only how we interacted but how we um how we much more how we made sense of the world as well so you know did those did those myths and stories and the storytelling around that serve more than a more than just an entertainment or a, a, or a, an interest purpose um but might have also served as warnings or um instructions even hmm, i like that that's really mm. really good i think um i think i'd follow up on that with thinking that um we have common myths around animals that are familiar to us, or at least are book familiar or TV familiar, that we, we don't even know whether they're based in truth, but they've become, it's a little bit like Aesop's fables, isn't it? Mm. They've become the way that we view those creatures. And then there are a whole suite of creatures for whom we've added extra levels to. You know, I was thinking about that, uh, you know, foxes are sly crows are greedy um you know an elephant never forgets all those things which basis in truth pretty slender really and uh um i was checking in not you know two thousand years after pliny wrote that elephants were afraid of mice yes (laughs) which is still a myth that you'd have to bust during myth yeah. yeah so so you have these ways that we view creatures and then we add another level to creatures that are more than animal less than human and and combine elements of both and i guess so we we then double up on the on the layers that we add to them for our own purposes and i like the implication that these things have incredibly deep roots Mm. because we think we're twisting myths even now and adding adding extra levels to them but um there's a harvard linguist uh michael witzel who really believes that that many of the world's mythologies have common roots he almost divided the the original Gondwana land, where all the continents were one, and saw them split, and follows the myths in a sort of arc of the sort of oh, Australasia, Asia, yeah. South America, mm. being different to the ones from from the north, but lots of common threads between the two. So things that we might think of as particularly British myths, creatures. I don't know. I'm thinking like. Um, in Scots, you have the Selkie, yes. so the sort of seal folk, which are, you know, capable of shedding their skin and switching between human and seal form. Well, uh, 
That is a common myth through other northern cultures where seals are found. So it's like, well, that's a very appealing aspect of it to me, is that the things that we, we delve deeply into feel are particular to our locale actually have planet-wide roots and link us with many, many other cultures, all of whom have sought to find a way to make sense of the non-human with a common myth. Yeah, indeed, and it it speaks to me of um, the flood mythology, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, a tremendous amount of cultures the world over have a flood story in their in their um, in their belief system, so there must be something else. There must be some common linking factor um, that uh, makes that that flood story um, have some basis in fact across all of those cultures across. And, and the that globe. truly is a global phenomenon, yeah. isn't it? The flood mm. uh, myth, legend, um, some basis in reality. It seems when you look uh, at archaeological ruins in some yes. places. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so there's all these creatures. There's all these layers. There's the trying to tease it all apart. I was thinking of creatures like werewolves mm. and in Native American, the Wendigo, or there's griffins, or there's there's all these bizarre and wonderful creatures. And I thought it would be fun to, to speak to somebody who knows something about mythological beasts because she's written about them. So let's go and talk to her. Okay. Hello, my name's Thea Smiley and I'm a playwright and a writer and I live in Suffolk. Um, I had to uh, write Woodways. I felt it, it was basically after Wild Man, after Return of the Wild Man, um, the play that was commissioned by Wonderful Beast in um, 2015. Um, I, I wrote that and I enjoyed it so much because I could use the more kind of poetic language uh, in his voice to create a piece of theatre, piece of drama. Um, and it was great fun. And so after that, when somebody suggested to me to write a companion piece, I went for it and I thought, well, I know exactly what I want to write. I want to write about a wild woman. A woodrose is um, a wild man or woman and um, they are usually kind of based in in the forest uh, because the forest is a very good place to hide in but they don't necessarily have to be in the forest. The word woodrose has changed over time and can mean different things and be pronounced in different ways. Basically a wild person, a wild being. It's, it comes from kind of um, European folklore and British folklore as well. Um, and, but it's, you, you will see in um, European art, uh, in, during the Renaissance as well with uh, Dürer, you will see a wild man which, who's um, hairy from head to toe holding a, a large wooden club. Um, but there were wild women as well, woodways, female woodwoses too. They have been, they feature on fonts in East Anglia and actually in Norfolk and Suffolk we have more woodwoses than anywhere else, any other county in England, um, which is fascinating. But that, I didn't realise that when I started to write about. And the, the wood can be wild, it can also be mad. 
and the woes is, is uh, being. So perhaps a kind of wild being. Bad being, wild mm. being. But wild beings kind of naturally um, wanted to hide away and um, stayed in forested areas, and especially in Europe as well. You found them actually um, on kind of heraldic uh, coats of arms and things like this. Um, there are many kind of symbolic virtues of the like um, fertility and uh, rebirth and kind of pre also pre-Christian man. Mm. So yeah, you do find quite a few of them without a face. Really? Yeah, okay. and sometimes their feet have been destroyed. I mm. think it's to take away the more human elements of them. Um, it's such a shame, but when you find a nice specimen, it's really exciting. Um, I think, I mean, it's it's including a kind of more pagan symbol, like there are lots of green men yes. in churches, um, and that's kind of a symbol of rebirth. The, the wood rose is important um, because perhaps they wanted to ward off evil spirits and things, as I've said, but also just guarantee that they, if they included these figures, they, were, they would have a good harvest, you know. They didn't want to do anything that would jeopardise the harvest. So they included uh, symbols from the old religions, yes. from paganism, uh, within the Christian space, just to ensure that they would have a good harvest. They wanted to survive, which is fair enough. Yeah. But it's, he's, he's also, he, she, uh, uh, was also a symbol of kind of pre-Christian man. So they appear on these fonts, so... Um, you know, actually, maybe the the importance of baptism or whatever, okay. just a reminder that, you know, we've come from the wild. There's also, I was reading about it, to do with the stone fonts, where the stone came from, and quite often it could have been brought over from Europe. And um, there was, uh, somebody mentioned that perhaps they were pre-carved in Europe right. and then brought over, which is a new idea for me. Yeah. Um, they feature so strongly in European folklore and you know we are uh, the least wooded country right now in Europe. The idea of the wild man, the woodways, goes back so far. Mm -hmm. It goes back to like maybe the hunter-gatherers and then when people moved into agri agriculture so you would see these kind of hairy beings foraging in woodland or whatever and perhaps there was a more of a divide than I know about. There was um, a need to tell a story about a wild woman. I felt that even when I was writing Return of the Wild Man, um, I wanted to put a wild woman in that play and actually she was cut, which, you know, for good reasons, but um, I wasn't gonna let her go that easily. Um, that was hugely important to me. And so um, my character of the Woodways is strong and she's dignified. Her character is very different to the wild man. Um, I wanted to con contrast them. So, you know, he's a bit erratic, he's a bit all over the place and uh, slightly dangerous in, the, in his um, unpredictability. But the Woodways is quite solid. She is like a tree in her personality. Wild Man of Orford, um, I've known it for most of my life and 
um, when Wonderful Beast and Elise Keel and I talked about it, uh, we decided that I should write a play about the Wild Man. And basically, it was um, I was interested in him because uh, he'd been fished out of the sea in the 12th century by some fishermen and taken to the castle in Orford and treated very, very badly. He was tortured and then taken back to the sea. He probably was, he was in prison for a while, but I think they wanted to take him back to the sea, perhaps because he'd started to smell. Um, and they took him for a swim, but they tied a rope around his, his ankle and put some nets in the sea so he couldn't escape. Uh, but he, I think he could have escaped if he'd wanted to. But what intrigued me was the fact that he didn't, that he came back. And so when I was trying to write something about the Wild Man of Orford to, to make it my own, I, what interested me was why he came back. And I thought perhaps he's in love, perhaps he's fallen in love. Um, he was brought back and treated very badly again, but I created a love story, which, yeah, this, uh, the fisherman's wife came to see him, she brought him fish in a bucket of seawater and actually he was so pleased with the seawater uh, he enjoyed that and they they fell in love and formed a relationship but when he was taken to the sea again he decided to escape and so this is all my kind of creation i elaborated on the on the original story but the, one of the most important things i thought was to give this poor man a voice you know he was a stranger he couldn't speak our language we had treated him so badly to actually hear what he had to say was really, really important to me. So I thought, yes, he's going to come in and tell his story right now, you know, in that present moment. Doing some research on this and came across a story uh, from Latvia in 1936, where a team of foresters were sort of inspecting the forest near Riga, and they came across this hairy figure crouched by a tree and it, it tried to run off and was swinging over the branches and they they, this, they tracked it down this is relatively modern times it was shot at and and crashed to the ground seized by the men when they brought it back to the village it was somebody they knew it was somebody who had disappeared from the village 20 years ago gone wild and of course there's a lot of also tales of sort of feral humans who just yeah. return yes. to nature in that way and and become unrecognizable to us I think we're fascinated by wildness. We're kind of scared by it, but we're also intrigued by it as well. And to have, and by strangers, you know, by the mystery of it too, because he actually, the second time in the, in the myth, he swam away and was never seen again. And we'll never know who he was. Some people say he might've been the, one of the last Vikings. Um, but this was all recorded by Ralph of Coggeshall back in, um, you know, the, the 13th century. It was a, all happened in the 12th century. But um, I think it's had a lasting appeal because perhaps we all recognise that, you know, the, the danger of that wildness within us and in the natural world as well. And someone so closely linked to nature, I think perhaps we envy them slightly. Um, and that's partly why I find it's, it's so important to connect with nature on you know, a daily basis, to get out there and be surrounded by it. But... It's a kind of process of, it, stories bring us all together, which is very, very important. It unites us and 
helps us um, think about certain subjects that we might find difficult and also we learn from them. We learn so much. I mean, through wonderful Beast Theatre Company, which is, is so focused on storytelling and the importance of storytelling, I've really learnt um, about how much we as adults need it. You know, I know that children um, are told endless stories, but actually we need it too. It's a wonderful process where we can escape our daily life and hear about something completely different. And we seek it all the time and there are stories everywhere, but it does unite us and helps us process perhaps difficult information, things that we're struggling with or things that we need to remember. And I thought about lots of different East Anglian myths. And the one that leapt out at me was the myth of the, the green children of Woolpit. Well, that's it. Yeah, I, it was basically recorded by um, Ralph of Coggeshall, um, the abbot from Coggeshall in Essex. Uh, just as the the story of the Orford Wild Man was. So it was really nice that they both had the same source. And the story is about um, a couple of children who were found near the village of Walpit, and uh, this was in the, the 12th century. And no one knew who they were, where they'd come from. They were treated slightly better than the Wild Man, I have to say. Um, they were green. Woolpit gets its name from the wolf pits, which were dug around a village. So uh, they couldn't speak English, they, no one could understand them, but they actually took them in. The villagers took these children in and looked after them. And they tried to feed them foods, and the only food that the children would eat were, were beans. And they, so they fed them, and soon the children lost their green colour. But they were also baptised. This was an important part of it, and this leads back to the fonts again. Um, so it's nice to have a baptism. In, in the play, but um, they were baptised and unfortunately the boy who was the weaker of the two died shortly afterwards. It's re it was really nice to rejuvenate an old tale, an old um, myth, and actually use that and perhaps kind of elaborate on it and, I don't know, give it uh, life again. Um, but also, I'm interested in the concept of modern myth-making, uh, particularly in environmental terms. I think it's a very good way to explore environmental concerns, matters, things that we need to discuss, you know, and actually, to, so to have that link to the past, uh, to literature of the present as well. But if it can help with the understanding of the importance of the natural, natural world to create a piece of theatre, to have those wild figures right there talking to you, telling you about their experience and how much the world means to them, then I think that's a very valuable thing. It's to um, encourage people to think about the wildness inside them. And, um, you know, actually in Return of the Wild Man, uh, his love affair produced children. Uh, which puts a whole twist on everything, you know, to think that we could be descendants, especially here in Suffolk, so close to Orford, we could be descendants of this wild man. When the wild man was written about in the 12th, um, when he came around in the 12th century, there was the development of the Orford Ness, 
it was just starting to grow and I went to the UEA and looked at old maps of the Ness and how it was developing and in the play he creates, the wild man creates the Ness. So it was, it was really nice that they tied in, you know, to have something actually kind of physical, geographical to go with this whole mythical concept. That was his way of punishing the village for treating him so badly. It was to make them landlocked, to block them in. And in fact, with Ted, Ted Hughes, I recently read um, Woodwoe, his poem about a Woodwoes. And, you know, he, the poem is very much kind of questioning what it is, what this, this figure, this creature could be, um, but kind of trying to get inside primitive man and uh, experience nature as well through it, which is interesting. I find it immensely reassuring to um, to think of wild places and wild people uh, because sometimes, you know, the world that we live in can seem so superficial. I think, you know, it's kind of... You just, you know, if you spend time among trees, it just kind of grounds you in some way and, yeah, takes me back to my beginnings, really, so it's important. I wanted to create these um, wonderful Im immortal beings who are actually superior to us, to humankind. They know more than we do, you know. We're, we should learn from them. <laughs> Definitely. Well, that was really interesting to talk to and especially talk to her about her views on why myths are still important to us and, and still current in our experience of the non-human world. Yeah, and I think uh, I'm a place of sort of a rootless person, I suppose, no sense of place, that's what I was trying to say. And it was really refreshing to talk to her because I suddenly felt a lot more rooted uh, in the place where I live. And uh, so better able to identify with the cultures around the world for whom these stories, these creatures, each of their own, mm. root them in a place. And what was interesting about talking to her about um, the woodwows especially is uh, at the very top of the podcast we talked about common mythological and, and storytelling threads that go across cultures. And talking about the woodwows and how much that reminded me of Bigfoot and Sasquatch and um, and and the Yeti and in 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 North in Siberia I think they call it the Migur and the Almasty is it the Almasty yeah, that's right yeah and so there's there's all sorts of th these names which are just seem to be other names for woodwows um, other names for wild men of the forest. Yeah, and it's it's a subject that I'm particularly fascinated by. And someday, Colin, we will head off to the woods of North America and go in search of the Sasquatch. I can't wait. Thank you for listening. Um, you can find out more about the things that we've discussed um, on the podcast at our website at beneaththestream.com and you can find our podcast on Podbean and iTunes as well. <laughs>